So first, uh, I would like to congratulate you for making it through the second day of practice. It is, uh, for many people, I know that many of you are emerging out of what is sometimes a, a major feeling like you're in a swamp. Uh, for some of you, you are emerging. Others, it feels even swampier on the second day, and sometimes even more like a detox center, as James was saying last night. And it really is, as the Buddha described, a process of going against the stream of, of our habitual habits. And they really come home to roost when we stop and keep quiet and look within. And it's really not easy. I'm just reiterating what James said last night. But uh, it, is, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of uh, persistence. And uh, the fact that you've made it this far, it's really one of the most rare things in the world to do this, even for 45 minutes or five minutes or 45 minutes or uh, let alone a whole day or two days. So, and thanks for your practice so far. I thought I would share with you, just so at least to begin the evening, just to share with you a, a reminder that Whatever you've been experiencing today in the, in the course of your practice, uh, you're not alone. People have had these kinds of experiences before. This is from the, a great meditation master named Bhante Gunaratna. He calls it the mind. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and helpless, hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. So you may wonder... At this point, when James mentioned there's this wonderful way that leads to the, uh, the release of grief, sorrow, lamentation, that leads to happiness, you may wonder, does this really lead to happiness? And what does that really mean, happiness? After all, the Buddha was called the happy one, Sukhiya. It's all about sukha, happiness. You may not have gotten that from the teachings that you may have read or heard, that it's all about happiness. But what does that happiness, what does it mean? We throw this word around, and I, I have some confidence that it's not just about being in a good mood. It's not about having a smile on your face, although that may, it may reflect, sometimes it may express itself as a smile. But it's about something perhaps a little bit more profound. So I'd like to go back a little bit uh, to the first night where I talked about this human being, the Buddha, the Prince Siddhartha Gautama, who felt somewhat queasy and dissatisfied, just had that existential angst and he had tried all of the, the amazing uh, display and availability of pleasures in his life, and he started to 
to just feel empty, feel unsatisfied. And it stirred in him a deep question, how can I find satisfaction? How can I find relief? He saw that nothing that he had tried before, and he saw that everything that had been offered, everything that was offered in his culture, seemed to increase the, the sense of disease. And what really uh, magnified his dissatisfaction was some of were some of his adventures outside of the confines of his very safe and protected environment at his dad's house. As he wandered around, he inevitably, if anyone opens their eyes, he came into contact with a being similar in age to him who was quite sick, who was very ill. And it seems crazy that a 29-year-old's mind would be blown when they see someone who's extremely ill. But it speaks to that capacity that each of us has for a kind of self-deception and not really looking at, at how it is. So he saw uh, an extremely uh, sick person. He saw then someone who was very old and decrepit, very, very already starting to become quite diminished and, and nearing uh, the end of their lives. This also blew his mind and he said, whoa, is, is this going to happen to me? And he said, of course. And then he saw a corpse, a, a dead body. We, we tend to hide those in our world. We tend to not let anyone see them. Remember how they didn't uh, let, how there's a concerted effort to hide the, the dead soldiers, the pictures of the dead soldiers, or to hide anything that showed the, the, uh, the corpses in uh, Iraq. Afghanistan. But these three, what are, have come to be known as the three, three of the first four heavenly messengers, really turned his mind around. And he realized, and he said to himself, if I am, if I'm going to get sick, get old and die, and everything I seem to seek after is also fleeting and unreliable. Where's the, where's the relief in any of this? There's something wrong with this picture. And it stirred in him this, this almost a, a revulsion, a, a shock and dismay at the, at the futility of seeking a sense of well-being in the way that he had before. Maybe that very stirring, what's sometimes called samvega, Maybe that same stirring has brought you to this kind of the willingness to stop in the way that we have. It really is quite profound to stop. And you know, we have to remember, though, this is not just about stopping and becoming miserable. The Buddha was not called the great sufferer. He was called the happy one. So how does this stopping and facing this lead to happiness. It's that interesting paradox that, as Rumi put it, something like the cure for pain is in the pain. Another way of saying that the way out is in. But something about turning and facing 
the truth of our condition begins to be the cause of some kind of opening. I brought along a Hafiz poem tonight, and this seems like a, a night that, that this has a, for some reason, even just sitting outside, this, this poem had um, kind of meaning, just, a, just the immediacy of everything, just the immediacy of sitting here with you tonight. Uh, makes my heart kind of tender. So I, I, I don't want to spoil the poem by getting too much into what I ha- what's going on with me. This is called Absolutely Clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of truth absolutely clear. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender. Something about connecting with our life and the immediacy of it, the truth of it, begins this process of tenderizing our hearts beginning to break down that, that feeling that we tend to carry, that somehow we are cut off from the flow of life, that we're, we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, blind to the fact that the wave is never separate from the ocean, that somehow we, we feel this sense of disconnect and then enter into this very narrow world of, of our our self ideas and preoccupations and and feelings and get absorbed and lost in them rather than open to them and then we spin and spin and feel more and more separate did any of you feel that today in the moments when you were caught did you feel connected with everyone when you were absorbed in the internal what we sometimes call the internal drama that this goes on as Bhante Gunaratna says, it goes on all the time. We're spinning. And so stopping gives us this chance to connect, to connect with the, the tender heart of connection. So the Buddha f- fortunately saw a fourth heavenly messenger in the form of a renunciate, someone whose who's both appearance and example was a reminder that, there are, that there was an, there's an option of going against the stream of, of utter distraction that the world seems to be uh, so good at, and someone who, who values simplicity and truth and and caring, and all the, what are these intrinsic qualities in our heart that often get hardened and and cut off when we're in that mad rush. As one poem says, we are the driving ones. We're caught in this this compulsion to get somewhere. And what happens to us is we tighten up, we get tight. So this renunciate had this beautiful, calm, easy countenance about him. And 
At the same time, he heard that there were some teachers that might be able to teach him some uh, meditation practice that might be give him some peace in his heart because he told his dad, he says, if I have to go into your business, if I have to be a, a prince and then a king, it, for me, it would be like sitting on a bed of coals, if, of, of burning coals, if there's no peace in my heart. So he asked his father if he could go off and start practicing, and he did. He went off, and he very quickly, um, because of his sincere yearning, and I like to point out at this point, when I talk about the, the Buddha, that you can hear that he had a really, really strong desire. Now, it wasn't desire for more stuff. But it was desire for that o the only thing that no other desire could fulfill, which is a desire to feel, to be free, to be truly happy. Recently, a uh, longtime Dharma student uh, just uh, came out with a book about one of our teachers named, named Anagarika Mamindra. And I had this... Uh, good fortune of being able to spend time with this teacher, this teacher Manindra who died many, many years ago at this point. How many years ago did he die? Five or six years ago. I had the good fortune of hanging out with him and I was his attendant on a retreat and went to visit him in, in, uh, in India and had this real fondness for him, as many people did. And, and a woman wrote a book about it and it reminded me of a conversation I had with him as I was leaving him after I had been his attendant on a, on a practice period. And he saw that I, was, that I had a fairly upbeat uh, temperament, that I, was, I, was, I laughed easily and this and that. But what he said to me as he was leaving, he says, may you truly be happy. This is vintage 1981 and immediately it pierced, it struck something in me. You mean I'm not truly happy? And this was the desire that really stirred in the heart of the Buddha, to be truly happy. He later described in his teaching that there are different kinds of happiness. And you shouldn't throw away any of them. That the happy's, happy's good. Happy's a good thing. A happy mood is a good thing. He said there is a whole kind of happiness that he called lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, that is a beautiful thing. The pleasure of good company, the pleasure of solitude, the pleasure of the, all the doors of perception, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the pleasure of, of giving, the pleasure of receiving, so many different kinds of pleasure. And he called uh, this kind of pleasure like I said, lokiya sukha, worldly happiness, which he also called conditional happiness or conditioned happiness. The happiness that depends on, generally the happiness that depends on satisfying some kind of hunger, which means you're happy when you have it, but you're not happy when you don't. He also called this kind of happiness the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. So it has both its pleasures 
all the amazing pleasures that we can have in this life, but it also has its defects, its dangers. It doesn't last. We tend to spend a lot of time waiting for it. Any of you wait for the, end, for the bell to ring today? <laughs> Did any of you feel like you were just hanging in suspended well-being? This is the dependency on conditions for, to, for your happiness. This is a, the, that pleasure of the bell ringing and that sense of, ah, that's a kind of, it's pleasurable, no doubt, but it's the pleasure that depends on that happening. And until it happens, as long as we, we devote ourselves to that kind of pleasure, we feel a lot, we spend a lot of time in a, f- in a feeling of waiting, hoping, expecting. We spend a lot of time uh, dissatisfied. And what happens while we're in that cycle of waiting for the bell to ring? when we're caught in that waiting. It's not very pleasant. What happens to the present moment? Present moment, as Eckhart Tolle often says, it's, it becomes basically three things. <laughs> and the longer you have to wait, the, it gets more toward the, uh, the third one. First, it's, it beco- the present becomes a means to an end, it's something we pass through on our way to something else. And this, James has been alluding to this. This is all we have. This is, this is where life is. What a shame. But then he says it also becomes the obstacle. The only place that life is becomes the obstacle. And then third, it becomes the enemy. And this is what happens when we, you could say, tether our sense of well-being to this domain of of what he called worldly happiness. But he also fortunately talked about another kind of happiness. So there's two main kinds, but there are many. You could talk about happiness in so many different ways. But the other kind was a happiness that is free of hunger. Happiness that, that doesn't depend on conditions. That, uh, that happiness a happiness that can be well, that a sense of well-being where we can be okay uh, even when it's unpleasant. So many of you may, um, if if we're confused about this question of happiness, many of us say we're coming to a retreat looking for the second kind, but we may notice on the retreat that much of where our, our um, focus, our fixation is, is on the first kind, on the quieting the mind. Naturally, we want, we like a quiet mind. But as long as you're waiting for a quiet mind, you're actually in a state of craving, a state of waiting, hoping. Our body, free of pain, one of those conditions course we would want that but if you get caught in it that very the very desire for that becomes suffering so we often are blown pretty continually in the especially during the period of settling into retreat we're blown pretty continuously by the winds of wanting the wanting mind it's often called hindrance number one 
or the aversive mind that says, you know, get me, get, get away, get me away from this thing. Pushing, pulling, pushing, pulling, liking, disliking, pushing, pulling. And then because these two are the, the state of, of wanting and not wanting is kind of tight, isn't it? ring bell, go away pain, quiet down mind. Because there's tension, we, our energy system, our whole sense of well-being begins to feel, uh, we start to feel a lot of turbulence. We get restless and then trying to make things a certain way, we get exhausted. And so we get desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness. And then what's the next thing that comes so organically in that cycle? Doubt and confusion. I can't do this. This practice isn't for me. I'd rather be, as we often joke, I'd rather be Sufi dancing. <laughs> or at a spa. Or our mind just cooks up even more and more and more elaborate uh, ideas and notions. And we have what's called a multiple hindrance attack. So if you've had any of these over the course of these few days, you are right on track. The good news is these states of mind are, there's a few things about them. They are our path. The confusion that comes is our path. That we put them to good use. We actually invite them in. We let ourselves feel them. And the very thing that when we don't notice them, when you don't notice the wanting mind, when you don't notice the aversive mind, when you don't notice the restless, agitated, sleepy mind, when you don't notice the doubting mind, they just torment you. They make us feel like we're totally in the wrong place at the wrong time. But when you notice them, you feel, I want that bell to ring. You feel the state of wanting. You take your attention off the bell for a moment. You feel what it's like to be in a state of waiting in a state of suspended happiness. Feel that. What you're likely to notice when you feel that is that very state, once it meets that amazing tool that James spoke about last night, once it meets that light of attention, there's awareness that shines through and notices that, it creates space. Art, as Leonard Jacobson says, the art of meditation is the art of making space. Space is there, and that state of mind reveals itself as just another weather pattern, another changing condition, another, another one of those winds blowing. And often, there is a sense of relief, there is a sense of cessation of our, of our tension, and the bell hasn't even rung yet. Experiment with it the next time you want the bell to ring. Turn toward that feeling of wanting. So that's all I really want to say about the hindrances right now. But they really are a very central part of our practice and we can put them to good use. They're actually wonderful, tenderizing uh, mindfulness tool uh, objects because especially with ill will and aversion, if you really open to it, you begin to understand what it's like for other people who feel a lot of aversion. You know, we often get uh, irritated with somebody who's angry, but when you feel whatever version of that in yourself, you go, whoa, that's what that's like. And it begins to open up our compassion door.
begins to say, wow, I know what that's like. And we start to feel compassion toward the pain that we feel in our own, in our own hearts, in our own bodies. Now, it doesn't sound that exciting to talk about it, but, it, it, but when you can actually work with a, a mental state, a very difficult mental state, and be able to accommodate it, to have what is so rare in this world, to be able to have something that's quite unpleasant and painful and have your mind be in a state of balance and ease in relationship to it. You've probably all heard the line that, that, that the pain is ine inevitable, but the suffering part is optional. And that's what our practice is about. It's beginning to pull out, to tease out the parts of our experience, the extra that gets added on to what's already there that brings a suffering to our mind. So getting back to the Buddha, he started to do his practice. And very quickly, because of his sincerity, this one desire that no other desire could fulfill, he became quite collected, quite concentrated, and he, he felt this great joy of tranquility, this great, what's called, what he called unmixed happiness, just a wonderful sense of concentration, tranquility, focus, sense of well-being, rapture, all kinds of wonderful qualities. And it was a, a, it was a beautiful thing for him. And he said, and he realized that this is really much better than any experience he'd had when he was kind of mucking around in the, in the ordinary um, sense pleasures. But then something dawned on him. He saw that even, I mentioned this on Wednesday night, that even those most delicious meditative experiences, that experience of great tranquility, was um, that kind of sukha, happiness, comfort, uh, was actually a changing condition too, another weather pattern. Not very reliable. And he saw that what we often take as, as sukha, as happiness, is actually what he later described as, as dukkha. Dukkha means suffering, unreliable. In this case, it's, it's uh, dukkha in its uh, definition of unreliable, empty, insubstantial, changing. And so he saw that that sukha was actually dukkha. And that, that's often, oh, we often joke, it's called sukha dukkha. So notice how much of the attention you devote toward, if not ordinary, pleasures on the retreat, but the meditative pleasures. Now, not taking anything away from these states of great concentration, they're actually very useful in the practice. And the Buddha even called them springboards to awakening. But he also called them the corruptions of insight when we get caught up in them, get caught up in searching for them. And if we've had them before, we tend to, to remember that naturally. We're human. And we often joke that we carry the the corpses of previous meditation experiences, and it burdens our practice. It's hard to be fresh when we're busy looking for the bliss, peace, harmony. And in fact, it blocks our way to the natural sense of bliss and harmony. 
It's a very unconditioned quality, bliss and harmony. And in some ways, we just need to turn toward it. Just even say the word bliss, harmony, peace. Some of these words are just remind us of what's really natural to us. Ease. So I don't want to belabor this too much, but he, at this point, he gave up on the concentration practices and there was no one else to give him any teaching, so he went out on his own. Well, actually, first he tried some ascetic practices, but all it did was make him sick and tired, rigid. He saw that that extreme of, renu- of excessive renunciation, of, of self-mortification and denial uh, just created a, just a lot of tension and and doesn't work for anybody if you're very busy uh, putting things away. And people will often adopt views when they hear the teachings about desire, about, about sense pleasures. They'll say, I shouldn't have any desires. And then they get really irritated and then irritating to everyone around them. So, so he saw that that extreme didn't work. And he had also seen that the extreme of sensual indulgence didn't work. That just left a long trail of dissatisfaction. So it was at that point that he started to get a sense of, the, of a middle way because he remembered a time where he was both comfort, comfortable, well-fed, healthy, but also in a state of utter simplicity. And he saw that there's some place in the middle where you can actually use the pleasures of the world as supports to gladden the heart, to bring sense of ease, but not to make it into an, to your devotion. Because we tend to f- start to have a sense of uh, what the Buddha called misplaced faith, that we, we think it's actually going to make us happy. And if we can have enough pleasures together, it'll make us happy. But it hasn't made anybody happy just to clump a bunch of pleasures together. Have you noticed? So at this point, nobody could help him. He sat down under the Bodhi tree and he used some of that sense of concentration that he had developed and the sense of pleasure that came with it. And he aroused it, but he didn't let the pleasure of it take over. Instead, he just started to pay attention in the exact way that you are doing, paying attention to the flow of his experience. And what did he see? He saw everything you're seeing. He saw the hindrances. He saw the doubts. He saw the, p- the pains and the pleasures. He, saw, he heard the, the voices of, of Mara. He saw Mara. You've all heard of Mara. Mara is the personification of that voice of temptation that says, who do you think you are? Why don't you, how could you be selfish enough to come on a retreat when there's so many problems in the world? You need to get back out there and be active. Any of you have that thought in the last few days? Maybe not. So Mara came to visit in all kinds of ways. Just part of the pantheon of thoughts and feelings and sensations. But then the more he paid attention to them, the more, rather than, uh, because his mind was quite strong and he was so keenly paying attention to everything. And I'm saying this to invite you to develop this strength of attention where that 
the more you pay attention, actually, whatever you pay attention to has the effect of making your mind brighter and brighter. It's like rubbing sticks together. And this is what happened with, with him until his mind was really bright and shining in its clarity. And he was, whoa, this is amazing. It's kind of taken with just the quality of attention that is possible to develop. Had nothing to do with external circumstances. Nothing to do with the conditions of what thoughts were happening, what feelings were happening. It didn't even have to do with inner conditions. But he began to see that the very nature of his consciousness, when, re, when kept away from its normal preoccupations, not just spinning here and there, mind kept away from its preoccupations, it became not only bright, but it became very quiet. And he noticed that everything became, anything he noticed became something that, that, um, that actually increased the brightness rather than got in the way of it. And then he started to see something very interesting about every experience that he noticed. And this is something that, that the practice of insight meditation, one of the, the translations of Vipassana is seeing, uh, is insight into the nature of reality. But sometimes that refers to, at least a portion of it, refers to seeing the common characteristics of every experience, seeing what's common in everything that happens. And if we really know that, if we really know what is common to each experience, we won't be in as much confusion. And if we're a little less confused, we will start to, quite naturally, to live in harmony with things the way they are. So we started to know, notice that there were three things going on with everything that came into his mind, his body, every experience. What are they? This is something we can keep paying attention to over the course of our retreat until it becomes indelibly imprinted in our understanding. And it's not just theoretical. Everything that arises passes away, impermanent and changing. Two, anything that arises and passes away, everything that came into his mind that arose and passed away, couldn't hold on to it, not a reliable source of well-being can't hold on to it. And it's if you do, you suffer. Very clear. If you hold on to changing condition, you get, as I forgot who said it, I think maybe Joseph Goldstein, you get rope burn. And third, that everything that, aro that arises and passes and is unreliable is also, um, because it arises and passes and unreliable, is unreliable, it cannot define you. It's not, it's not yours. It's not me. It's not mine. It's a changing condition. It's empty of self. It's selfless. It arises of itself. It takes place for a while. Did you notice that today with the, with the thoughts that came through your mind? James alluded to this last night. Do, was somebody in there pulling the lever saying, now think Literally 65,000 thoughts. That's what some said, that we have 65,000 thoughts a day and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> so we began to see that everything arising and passing 
And the more he saw it, the more his mind just stopped grabbing, trying to hold on to the things that are changing, try to push away the unpleasant experiences, hold on to the pleasurable. Stopped saying, this is me and this is mine. He just saw, he felt the whole show. And, and in fact, the more he didn't interfere, it was even, it allowed the whole experience of life to just express itself so fully. You may think that someone who's that open would, would, not, would not have any kind of, we tend to have these views that somehow it, he would turn into, we'd all turn into, if we meditate enough, we'll turn into kind of blank, boring, non-feeling. But in fact, it was the very quality of openness that allowed for the natural, the full expression of, of his nature, of our nature. This is why everyone, over the course of a retreat, the more we're here, the more we're open to our experience. By the end of the retreat, you, won't, you may not believe me now in the middle of it, but all of your hearts will be just like butter and eyes so light, so luminous, childlike. It's not by accident. It's not just because you had a good rest. It's because you've cleared, you're gently clearing the dust of memory so that that full expression of your nature can shine. And we're, we're intrinsically really beautiful. And it's so different uh, than the ideas that often play through our minds. So as he became less and less reactive, he fell into this great sense of, of, um, of balance. And he realized he was touching a sense of well-being for the first time, really. It was a kind of juncture where he realized that he was touching a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was going on. The first taste of that, that happiness, the, what he called lokutra sukha, unconditioned happiness, happiness that doesn't depend, doesn't, where it doesn't even matter what you're experiencing. And that's really the truth of our practice as we present it. It doesn't matter what you're experiencing. What matters is that you meet it with attention, with an open heart, with all the qualities that James described last night. If you can really practice with that understanding that either it do- nothing ma- none of it matters, everything matters, because it's all, it's all part of the show. E- equal opportunity mindfulness. So as he rested in that open, balanced state, his, his mind relaxed and it, it opened, and he had this great realization. He had this realization that he had wandered a long time looking for some experience to make him happy, and that whole sense of wandering had come to an end. And he awakened to uh, that nature of freedom within his own heart, that sense of well-being that doesn't depend on anything. His, his heart, mind opened. And he, as you do in those moments when you're not reactive, in those lucky moments when we're, when we're, we just notice things and, and our mind, sometimes it's, it's effortless. Sometimes it, it is to a degree the result of what you're doing here. It makes it more possible to have those moments. But you may taste that a little bit. It's not so different than what happened to him. In, that, in the immediate sense of that moment that you're just noticing something, 
it's not possible to be open to something and really suffer about it in the same moment. And just notice whatever you're noticing right now. When there's nothing is added other than that quality of openness and acknowledgement. You're not looking back and you're not looking ahead, not comparing or evaluating in that moment. You're just noticing. And then let's say a comparison comes into your mind. Oh, comparing. Very simple. Not so easy. <laughs> so at first he didn't uh, think anybody would be able to get what he, what he realized. But then he saw with his so-called eye of wisdom that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And I include all of us in that, in that uh, group. If you're here, that it, it's a sign of a certain kind of purity of understanding. Already, you've already understood that, that something about what, what, you're, what all beings are looking for, a sense of happiness, you have some understanding that it's an inside job. And he saw that there were those with just a little dust, and if they were pointed toward the cultivation of their own heart and mind, they could realize what he did. So he went first to the most sincere people that he knew, which were his ascetic friends, because they were, they had really, even though they had certain delusion, they were very um, keen on, on really finding some sense of relief. And in his first conversation with them, he basically said, He didn't start with how wonderful it is to be free. How wonderful it is to be truly happy. As a, a good physician will do first, he'll, um, he'll describe the symptoms. He'll describe the disease. And he's often been called the great physician. His case, his um, diagnosis was that all beings all beings have that in their life which is difficult to bear. Every one of us has the pain and suffering of um, being born into this world and fitting through that little canal, being thrust into the light. Every one of us has it's inevitable that all humans will uh, age, well, if you're lucky, get old, and every human being will die. Every single being will, well, every single human being will have some degree of uh, not wanting what you have and not, um, not wanting what you get and not getting what you want. All beings will suffer loss, separation from that which is near and dear. All beings will suffer when things change. This is the diagnosis for our condition. And the prescription for dealing with this, it must be, as Sharda said the first evening, this must be welcomed. It must be open to. It must be acknowledged. 
The cure for pain is in the pain. There are, he said, three kinds of so-called so dukkha. There is the, the suffering, the garden variety that I spoke about. Birth, sickness, old age, death. The very definition of birth, the leading cause of death. There is, there is all the, the garden variety. Then there's the suffering of change, of things being so fleeting. There's the suffering of everything that it takes to live a life. The, the work, the shopping, the cleaning, the relentlessness of it, the impingement every day of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. And there is an element of that which is painful for everyone. To, be in, to not be in harmony with this truth brings a lot of compulsion and misery. When that moment of, when we touch into what may feel to us initially as the unpleasant elements of life, that's often followed with, I don't like it. And I don't like it produces a little tension in our mind. And that little tension then spawns, I got to get away from this. And the whole thrust of our lives can then be sent on this endless search for, for pleasure. So one has to be able to say, I have welcomed this. I have opened to this. And this is really one of the invitations of our practice is to begin to open to dukkha. So you haven't just been dealing with hindrance attacks or a sore body or a busy mind or not getting what you want or too much noise or whatever it is. You've been having insight into the first noble truth. You've been having it your whole life, but much of the time we have been falling into what one story called the 84th problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise, with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his He asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, said the farmer, railed the farmer. You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. That's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. <laughs> this is dukkha. And what it spawns is the second noble truth, as I've mentioned in many different ways tonight. The second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. The Buddha diagnosed that the cause of suffering is our, this deep-rooted 
deeply conditioned, chronic pattern of wanting things to be different than the way they are, to be in contention with reality, that expresses itself as that incessant desire for pleasure, that search for pleasure, that endless holding our sense of well-being hostage to what's next, to tomorrow, the fixation on the imagined future, and how that keeps us in a li literally living in a dreamscape and overlooking the open possibility of being at home right where we are. It expresses itself as the desire for being, for existence, for becoming something or someone, that constant feeling of toppling forward, of being, that's why we're, our necks are stick out so much. That reminds me, my neck's sticking out a lot tonight as I talk. It expresses itself as the desire for pleasure, desire for existence or being or becoming, but also the desire for non-becoming, the extreme of the opposite of wanting things to just stop, that in its extreme expresses itself as that desire to, to end it all in its most extreme state. This is just another form of what the Buddha called tanha or craving. And his prescription for dealing with this is let go. This must be abandoned. And one has to be able to say and know for oneself, this has been relinquished. So the next time that you feel hostage to some experience on the retreat, even if it's the bell ringing, the desire for the bell to ring, we'll use that simple thing. And you put your attention on your body. You feel that sense of wanting. You may recognize, oh, this is dukkha, the first noble truth. The cause of it, I want the bell to ring. It may seem very innocent, natural, but if I get lost in that, again, I'm carried along in that state of weight. But if I feel that, and I just let it be, let it go, I follow that prescription of the second noble truth, real-time dharma, not just theoretical, not just a nice view of reality. And I notice that that waiting or that wanting passes away. I can then know for myself that this has been relinquished. And then in that small little vignette, I will also know the third noble truth, that it's possible to experience peace and freedom, letting go, that there is an end to suffering. Maybe in just this mini version, it may not as be as grand and as exciting as the total cessation of suffering, but th it is the simple drops in the bucket of letting go, moment by moment, that we begin to realize that sense of home where we are. Stop living so much about where we're going or where we've been. Just right now even, let go of the past or the future as you sit here tonight. Just let happen. Trust one moment to be just the way it is. This is the end of suffering. And finally, I don't want to say too much more about the end of suffering. That's something for you to realize. That's the, the, the diagnosis is that there is a, an end of suffering. And the prescription is this must be realized for oneself. And then last, that there is a path, the noble eightfold path. There is a path to the end of suffering. And I really like the 
description of, I think it's, boy, now I'm not, I think it's Stephen Batchelor. Traditionally, one says, the, the, the prescription is this must be cultivated, this must be followed. And there's a tendency to think that I have to just follow some kind of path. But I like Stephen Batchelor's view that this must be, this must be created, this path. But this path that you're, each of us individually creates, our own unique expression of life, has the, the elements that the Buddha recommended of wise action, that all that foundation of non-harming that we spoke about the first night, the precepts, the speech, the livelihood, devoting ourselves to living whatever life that we create in a way that causes as little harm as possible, that establishes uh, the potential for a great purity of mind, the joy of non-harming, the joy, the bliss of, of non-harming, to have that be established in our lives. The second part, to train your heart and mind to the middle part of the Noble Eightfold Path is to cultivate... Uh, your meditative practice, to develop loving kindness, to develop mindfulness, develop concentration, um, arouse your energy, heal your vitality. So live in a way that doesn't, that you're not so diminished all the time. And last, to heal your understanding, to awaken to the, the, that boundless sense that, that no one exists themselves apart from anyone else and then to live in harmony with that understanding. So to have wise understanding, and then thoughts that, that reflect that, to have wise action, and to have wise, wise mindfulness, or wise, um, uh, to, have to develop one's mind. The Noble Eightfold Path is a, whole, is a whole talk in and of itself, but the Buddha essentially says this must be cultivated, this path. But I like this must be created and cultivated. So I'd like to end with one of my new favorite poems. It's not actually new. It was written October 4th, 1947. But I think it speaks to what we can begin to cultivate right in the middle of this retreat, even in the midst of, of uh, the endless waves of sukha and dukkha, of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, and all, all, everything that we can learn from this character in this poem and um, discover what he did. It's called The Little Duck. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck, and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he's thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree. But he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. 
He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you. But he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it, just where it touches him. The people of the Middle Ages were more like this duck than we are. They took life as it presented itself and ran it up in spires of Gothic. They crossed few oceans, but they floated on the sea of time. And a cat is more like this duck than we are. We can radio to the moon and get back a pip for an answer, but a cat can make a hearth rug a haven in the infinite or launch four kittens into life in a cracker box by the furnace, purring with pride because she has tuned in on cosmic waves. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. Let's sit quietly. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy a half hour of practice, and of walking practice, and then we'll sit again at 9 o'clock. Thank you.